We will halve inflation, grow the economy, reduce debt. Nothing's changed. The circus moves on, rinse and repeat. We have an opportunity to become Europe's Silicon Valley. We can perhaps be a broker of some sort with Ukraine. We expect inflation to come off quite rapidly in the rest of this year. Obviously, we want to see that happen. What we now need is a period of stable, quiet, serious government. Hello, you're listening to Bloomberg UK Politics. I'm Caroline Hepke. And I'm Stephen Carroll. In a moment, we're going to dig into the debate around funding for universities and hear from the lawyers behind a case that has signed up nearly 150,000 students to sue their university over how they were taught during the pandemic. But first, this has got to be the quote of the day for me. Unlike some previous Prime Ministers, Mr Sunak is said to read up obsessively before key meetings. Where's it from? Apparently, this is from a civil servant. It's in the Daily Telegraph this morning. It suggests that Rishi Sunak's fatal flaw might be that he simply works too hard. Is that a fatal flaw? Is that the sort of thing that we need to be worried about? I mean, this sounds like... um, the sort of thing that one would expect from a Prime Minister, no? Yeah, absolutely. Not here at Bloomberg is the response (laughs) that I was going to give you. Uh, Look, Rishi Sunak's image, I mean, increasingly, you know, it is the chess fanatic, the maths fanatic, Mm. the workaholic, the teetotaler. Is that genuine? Is it cultivated? Also, does that sort of public image go down well with voters? I mean, in my day, we might have called the Prime Minister, dare I say it, a spod, which I, I say it kindly. I, do you not know Sounds this like phrase? like a slang for potatoes. Yeah, go on. Yeah, no, it, this is a kind of um, a bookish person, perhaps not a very attractive person. Anyway, it was the insult that was used when I was at university. Uh, the thing that I picked <laughs> out of this was um, that Rishi Sunak's comments around his Peloton workouts that he does before uh, when he gets up early in the morning uh, and how he's particular fan of certain instructors and means he listens to a lot of Britney and finds it very motivating and perhaps painting another side uh, of the Prime Minister's character. All of this being discussed on a day, of course, the Prime Minister's had a bit of a reshuffle of his team. Grant Shapps is the new Defence Secretary after the expected resignation of Ben Wallace that Mm. had been flagged earlier this summer. Claire Coutinho as well has been appointed Energy Secretary to replace Grant Shapps. Our senior government reporter Alex Wickham is with us now for more on this. This is, Alex, the long-awaited mini reshuffle Any surprises in here for you? I mean, the appointment of Grant Chaps as Defence Secretary is a bit of a surprise. He doesn't particularly have a defence background, um, and he was he was making hay in that energy job, sort of as the Tory attack dog going after the Labour Party on energy policy. However, Rishi Sunak decided he wanted a sort of safe pair of hands in that role, as, as you obviously would. Um, the Tories see Shaps as an effective communicator and somebody who won't cause any problems for Downing Street on defence spending as they have had over the last couple of years with uh, Ben Wallace seeking more money. Uh, so that's why they've they've put him in that job. And then we've got uh, Claire Coutinho in, in replacing Shaps in the energy department. She's a sort of rising star Tory, very close Sunak, loyalist and ally. It, it's little bit of a job for a mate but um it, it, she is she is a sort of well regarded and highly tipped person in Tory circles uh, but a big promotion for her uh, to, to a top cabinet job um for, for a relatively young uh, Tory minister yeah absolutely so that's quite interesting um what did you make of Ben Wallace's resignation letter certainly the letter that he got from the prime minister was uh, full of praise and approval 
Yeah, very glowing. I mean, you know, as, as the Tory ministerial record goes over the last few years, I think Ben Wallace is right at the top when it comes to performance. And I think most people cross party would agree with that. He is seen and credited with getting weapons to Ukraine before Russia invaded and being very quick to sort of see the dangers there when some others were perhaps downplaying the the risk of, uh, of Russia invading, and that is seen as a as a you know, major British uh, policy win over the last few years. One of the few, perhaps, um, and certainly you know on the international um, forum as well. He he was very well regarded by. Uh, you know, Britain's allies in the in the US and in Europe, especially. So, you know, he definitely, definitely was one of the sort of better performing Tory uh, ministers over the last few years, and I think that's what is reflected in Rishi Sunak's letter today. Despite those little slight personal disagreements and policy disagreements on defence spending, when uh, Wallace would constantly push Sunak for more money when he was chancellor and again when he was prime minister to try and increase Britain's defence budget. What about, is this it, essentially, when it comes to a reshuffle, Alex? Should we be expecting any more cast changes? Yeah, I mean, it's a bit of an odd one because Downing Street were telling us, sort of off the record a few weeks ago, oh, you know, in September we'll have a big, you know, a decent-sized reshuffle, we'll get some fresh faces out there, you know, we'll, we'll show you our new team for the election. And now they've sort of changed their mind about that and instead they just want to do a very mini reshuffle today and then they're sort of dangling this prospect of a wider reshuffle after the party conference season, so back end of October, um, we're looking at now for that sort of wider reshuffle. But the question is, and, you know, slightly the question today as well that some Tories are sort of asking me this morning, is what's the point? You know, they, they needed to replace Wallace, fine. They've got some other ministers that they're looking at that they're not very happy with the performance of. But is Rishi Sunak going to really start firing Suella Braverman as Home Secretary or Steve Barclay as Health Secretary? I mean, it seems unlikely. And who is he going to put into those sort of jobs? There is not exactly, to be blunt, uh, you know, a conveyor belt of incredibly talented Tory ministers coming up the, up the ranks who, who you know, deserve top jobs in government. And it, it is a little bit uh, unclear what the point of today's reshuffle and indeed the, any future reshuffle would be. And I think that's why we're getting a little bit of dithering mm. from Rishi Sunak on this. And that's what some, some Tories are sort of just saying. It doesn't exactly project strength to tell everyone you're going to do a reshuffle and then actually mm. decide you don't know what you want to do in your reshuffle. So you're only going to do a mini one. And you but, might do one in the future. Yeah, absolutely. Just a brief thought then. We're buying the school supplies. We're getting ready for Parliament to sit uh, next week. What do you think the mood is actually coming back from this summer? I think lots of Tory MPs feel it was a bit of a wasted summer. You know, they had these teams weeks, didn't they, at the beginning of the summer on sort of small boats week and, and NHS mm. week and things like that. And it didn't really go very well. Um, you know, to be polite. Um, you know, the the boats crossing the English Channel were you know, large, in, in large numbers over the summer, despite Rishi Sunak's pledge to stop the boats. That is a really tough 
expecting frames are going to voters, you know, come come the end of the summer. Uh, and similarly on the NHS, you know, the NHS has has been in you know worsening crisis with with record backlogs and more strikes. So it is pretty tough for Sunak to come back in September and, and explain, you know. His performance over the summer, and I think some Tory MPs are, you know, the morale is always low at the moment in the Tory party. You know, they expect to lose the election. They don't expect great things from the government. Um, but you know, I think they're pretty disappointed even by by their expectations of how how the summer went. Okay, Alex Wickham, our senior government reporter. Thanks very much. Uh, interesting to hear us talking about the back to school uh, theme, as <laughs> yes. that's exactly where we're going next. We're going to talk about universities. More than two million students across the country getting ready for the start of the academic year. The institution themselves, though, facing pretty major challenges this time. Yeah, absolutely. Universities have always been something uh, that the UK is good at. You know, education is a major export. Only the US has more universities in uh, the kind of global top 50 rankings. But it's the issue of the funding squeeze. The tuition cap, of course, is at £9,000. That was introduced a decade ago. It's now in real terms, because of inflation, only worth £6,500 in real terms. That shrinking funding, a real issue for English universities. Yeah, in fact, the number of universities reporting in-year deficits increased sixfold from 5% in 2015 to 32% in 2019. High fees from international students are now part of what universities are using Mm. to plug the gap. We know that number has been growing dramatically. It's gone up uh, from uh, £442,000 in 2015 to 605,000 in 2021. And yet, of course, this is something that the government wants to clamp down on increasingly because this contributes to the net migration numbers into the UK. So the government is tightening visa rules, might also scrap the international graduate work visa. This is the permission if you come and study here at graduate level that you then get a couple of years to work in the UK. We've been discussing all of these issues with Vivian Stern, Chief Executive of Universities UK, which represents 142 universities around the country we started by asking her how they're coping with lower real terms funding. When you go around universities as I do all the time, you can start to see the cracks emerging. And the reason for that is the, you know, the long-term decline in funding for teaching, which uh, has been emerging over the course of the last decade in all four nations of the UK. So what does that mean in real terms for students then? Are students getting a worse experience now than they did years before? So I don't think we're at that stage. I mean, I think that, you know, if you allow this to continue to drift, it's quite hard to see how you continue to maintain things like the staff and student ratios that we've currently got or, you know, how universities can continue to invest in great facilities and supporting students to succeed, all of the kind of stuff that they do every day to make sure that a student who walks in the door is supported to get a a good degree. Um, I think... You know, the the position we're in at the moment is that universities are trying to shave the things that they can off their cost base. So you get lots of universities that are doing things like restructuring their um, their academic offer, um, you know, trying to be more efficient on their professional services side. Um, There's obviously a huge emphasis on diversifying income. So universities Hmm. are... Um, dependent on international fee income to a greater extent than they were in the past. I think the point is, it's not that 
I mean, I'm not blowing the whistle and saying we've got a crisis. It's also very highly um, dependent on the kind of circumstances of individual universities. You know, some are in stronger positions than others. But I think the point we're making is you can't let this continue and expect to maintain the standard of higher education that we're able to offer in the UK. Has university funding, in your view, then been a priority for government, do you think? We've heard quite a lot of, you know, quite strong criticism, frankly, by government of of higher education, that it is not delivering for students, um, you know, talking about low value degrees and and trying to limit those. Has this government prioritised university funding? No, I mean, I think not in recent years. I mean, looking back over a longer period of time, I think that um, successive governments have understood that for an advanced economy like the UK, you have to invest in both education and research at the highest levels, because otherwise simply you're not going to be able to compete with other fast growing economies. Um, And so, you know, if you look, if you take a 20 year period, I would say that in various um you know points in time there has been political capital spent on making sure that universities stay really robust i think where we are right now it's completely clear that it isn't a priority for government it's not even a priority for um our department for education for the secretary of state or the higher education minister who are emphasizing other things and uh you know i guess my point would be that's got to change. This is sort of foundational to the future success of the UK. So you can't afford to neglect it just because you think you've got bigger problems elsewhere. I appreciate you saying the situation isn't a crisis now. Are we heading towards a crisis? Look, I think, as I said, the the position that universities are in varies quite a lot. I've spent the last week and a half visiting lots of universities in Scotland. And I think some are really able to recruit lots of international students and that's keeping the wheels turning. Others are starting to do quite radical things to shave off costs, you know, and there are some institutions where I think if you look at the three to five year financial forecasts, it's difficult to see how you get through that without doing things that start affecting the the kind of thing that people are going to the last resort will be the stuff that actually affects the quality of teaching on offer so i talked about staff student ratios for example but you are seeing universities doing things like cutting programs that they can't make balance the books and you know lots of universities cutting programs in uh, humanities for example modern foreign languages where student numbers might be kind of low and therefore the programs are difficult to make financially you know Mm. um Uh, balance the books and and I I worry about that because I think you know the decisions that universities will make that they have to make because they have to be able to balance um, their budgets at the end of the year um you know some of those things that you do in order to to be financially resilient might not actually be sort of in your best interests as a nation kind of from an educational point of view well talking of best interests um you know in terms of the UK as a whole I don't think that people will be aware of just how much universities are plugging the gap, as you say, with international students who have to pay, obviously, yeah. much higher um, fees. I mean, the numbers have risen dramatically, both at undergraduate and graduate level. International students, for example, 280,000 
uh, of um, students at undergraduate level last year. That's gone up from 160,000 in 2010. And at postgraduate level, it's gone from 206,000 in 2017 to 372,000 in 2021-22. So these are huge numbers. Uh, you know, are UK universities now basically dependent on the fee revenue that they're getting from those international students? I mean, the short answer to that question is yes. The, you know, teaching domestic students overall, we, we've got a system that allows us to kind of track, in fact, it's called track, what it costs to teach in, in universities. It's not perfect, but um, we can sort of tell. Overall, across the board, universities are losing about a billion pounds a year on teaching home undergraduate students, and they're making a surplus on, on international um, students of about three billion a year, which is cross subsidizing both domestic education and also uh, research activity. International students, I mean, look, I've, I've spent my career working on the, um, the openness of our universities to international students and international research collaboration. And it is straightforwardly a good thing that we're such an attractive destination. It makes our universities better in lots of ways. It's not just financial. Um, it's also, you know, fantastically good for the economy. We get international students who come to the UK, they use UK services, they spend money in shops and, you know, small businesses but, right across the I country. Suppose, so it's good for everybody. Yes, but, it, it, but is that true or is that a little bit naive? For example, Parliament's in Intelligence and Security Committee talking about, you know, universities, not just universities, other industries too, though, very concerned about you know the number of Chinese students, the influence of Chinese mm. academics on UK universities. I mean, they use quite alarming language that you know th that um, China has used influence over institutions, UK academics, and Chinese students. So, is it naive to say that it's all a good thing? Well, what I would say is that you know it's. I think it's unwise at national level to be so reliant to fund domestic education and research on income from what is always going to be a slightly volatile source. I, I think it's unwise from the strategic point of view for sort of a whole bunch of reasons, including the fact that, you know, we're in a pretty fragile geopolitical environment at the moment. We've also got domestic policy, which you know, domestic policy rubs up against international student um, uh, policy all the time. And so, you know, we're in a situation where you've got a, a system that's increasingly relying on income from international student fees, um, where we cannot guarantee that that sort of income is going to be stable. You know, we had a, a period a couple of months ago when government was really trying to drive down international student numbers and it took quite a lot of effort from people across government not only from the sector but from folk in the treasury pointing out if you do that you're taking away the thing that is sustaining domestic education and research yeah what is this what, what is the solution here is it putting up fees for home students so look this is very difficult and i think a lot of people are going to say in the current climate you know, there are lots of things that government needs to invest in and that universities are never likely to be at the front of the queue. Um, and especially going into an election, I think that's true. But you know what? We cannot continue to do this. We can't 
continue to drive down the university system, which is probably one of the few areas the UK can really hold up as um, world leading. So in the end, I think something's got to give. I'm not suggesting that's got to be tomorrow or the day after, but if you're in government and you really imagine that you're going to keep the uh, the current funding for teaching through, in England, the fee system or in Scotland through um, the funding that's provided by the Scottish government at the current level for, you know, another five, six, seven years in a, in a period when you might have quite high inflation. I think my question would be, you know, have you thought through the consequences of allowing this this thing to, you know, to be driven into the sand? So I don't think it's a question of, you know, should this happen? I think it's a question of when is it going to happen? Now, we I think we should also be looking in the English setting at the balance between the individual contribution through tuition fees paid back through earnings once you've graduated and the upfront contribution that government makes through teaching grants to universities. Mm -hmm. My own view is that the balance is wrong, that, you know, after the financial crisis, what government did in order to sustain funding to the higher education system was pass more of the costs onto the individual and that we should look to adjust that balance again. Um, and I think by international comparison, the UK is more reliant on individual contributions than any other system in the OECD. So that I think so is where we should general... be looking. It's not all about increasing the fee. I think it's also about yeah. increasing the public upfront contribution uh, for higher education. So that is general taxation. But the thing is, is government listening? Because what I hear is promotion of apprenticeships, of degree apprenticeships as a better yeah. route for young people. The fact that there is a skills gap that employers are you know, concerned and increasingly want school leavers really through apprenticeships and the sorts of skills that directly plug into jobs in, you know, in the modern uh, environment and, and labour market right now. That's what I hear government wanting. So degree apprenticeships are massively growing in popularity, but the, the clues in the name, and they're not an alternative to higher education, they're a form of higher education. So, um, you know, it's a collaboration between um, a, a a, a university or a, a higher education institution doing the degree part and the company um, uh, providing the training. So it's a different form of higher education, um, which is growing in popularity and which universities are heavily involved in uh, working with industry to deliver. It's also not breaking even in, in the case of any of the institutions I've spoken spoke to offering degree apprenticeships. But more broadly, when you look at what this economy is going to need in the next decade or two, we just recently conducted a study of FTSE 350 um, leaders to ask them what they thought that their businesses were going to need in the future. And, you know, that combined with analysis of the way that the labour market is developing suggests we're going to need a significant growth in the proportion of the population that's educated to degree level. You know, we've estimated it's about 11 million additional graduates by 2035. And the reasons for that are quite kind of simple that, you know, our labour market is going to change. It's changing really, really fast right under our feet. And you can't expect to continue to compete as a as an economy if you don't, especially as an advanced economy, if you don't move with that and make sure the labour market can draw on, um, you know, people who are educated to um, that level. And, it, and it's not necessarily about specific skills. I mean, apprenticeships and particularly degree apprenticeships um, tend to be 
you know, a combination of training people to do a particular type of job and giving them the ability to continue to learn throughout their working lives. But that's but that's true generally of higher education. You know, how do you make sure that somebody develops the master skill, which is the ability to learn and keep learning and keep applying that learning to the thing that you have to do tomorrow, not just today. And that's why I think higher education is going to be you know, it's, it's going to remain critical to our economic performance as a country. That was Vivian Stern, the Chief Executive of Universities UK. Um, this is interesting to reflect on these challenges, but also to think about the challenges that students are facing here as well. The uh, cost of student loans, for example, the rate mm. now that people are paying on their student loans, 6 to 7%. A year ago, that was under 3%. Wow. So that means that students are being squeezed from all directions as the cost of everything else that they're paying for is going up as well. Of course, accommodation, food and everything else that we're all experiencing. Yes, and you don't forget that there is mass strike action in many universities across the UK and a lot of students uh, who may be graduating might not have actually had their papers marked because that's uh, been part of the strike action since April, of course, not to give grades out, not, not to do the marking. Um, so that's one issue to think about. Yeah, well, with fees being the level they are and the level of student loan interest people are paying, many are increasingly asking if degrees are offering value for money for students. And that's actually a question that's at the centre of a major upcoming legal case as well. Almost 150,000 students have signed up to sue universities over the service that they were offered during the pandemic. They want to claw back some of the fees that they paid out. The action recently received £30 million in financing from a New York-based investor. uh, And the uh, partner at the heart of this uh, trial, Ryan Dunleavy, partner at Harkus, Uh, Parker, one of the law firms representing the students, spoke to us. Um, We started by asking him why this team of lawyers has taken on this this case and and signed up so many students. Well, firstly, we wouldn't be bringing it as a no-win-no-fee if we hadn't thoroughly investigated this ourselves. We've had several King's Counsel look at it. We have an expert barristers team working on it and a large group of solicitors. So just from a commercial perspective, without giving away what advice we've given our clients, we wouldn't be doing it as a no-win-no-fee and sinking our resources into doing it if we didn't think it would win. So that's the first point. The second point is not all their contracts are that straightforward. Um, there's a lot to be argued in relation to them. And the third point is that the students are consumers in under, under legislation in this country. So under the Consumer Rights Act, contracts have to be fair. And it's not fair to have hidden provisions in contracts where the universities effectively say, well, we can do what we like, um, but you still have to pay us. They are consumers. They have consumer rights. So it's not just about what's in the black letter law of the written contracts. It's also what statutory rights these students have to protect their positions. And we think they've got a very strong case, as do um, all the people advising us and and our own internal legal teams. What's the other broader potential consequences of this for universities in the UK, though? If you were to win your case, does that place, would that place further obligations on universities on the sort of education that they offer, even in crisis situations like a pandemic? Uh, it, the, the precedent it would set, essentially, is that universities must comply with their own contracts. And we say, actually, that the contracts aren't what you said before, but they are they were they required the universities to provide in-person tuition and access to facilities because that's what people had paid for and that was the understanding from all of the literature involved in uh in the contractual position 
in terms of yeah, the impact on the universities, the universities in future will have to comply with their own contractual obligations and, and the statutory obligations that they have towards students who are consumers. It's as simple as that. Like like anybody else, you know, if you if you purchased a Rolls Royce and they delivered a Renault and they turned around and said, well, sorry, we had a parts shortage that wasn't our fault, uh, you would expect the difference in value between the Renault and the Rolls Royce. That it's, it's, it's a simple legal issue. Yeah, and there is, you know, on the flip side, a great deal of sympathy for students, for young people who suffered through the pandemic. Um, you know, we know that the impact that that had on them sort of educationally, mental health and job opportunities and so on. So there is sympathy um, for the, that, that young cohort, of course, as you describe them. But on the other hand, the concern around the financial impact on the structure of UK universities, if you're talking about this and then ongoing kind of liability in terms of the leeway that universities have, I suppose, how do you, how does government balance those two things? Because ultimately, a big part of, you know, higher education in the UK is fundamentally supported by government policy. Well, it is supported by government policy, but I don't think this is really a governmental issue. If you, these are very big businesses. So if you take, for example, you know, without going into the 100 universities plus that, that, that we're pursuing, if you take, for example, the, the lead case of UCL, um, we have 6,000 students uh, in that claim, which is the largest amount of students going against any of the universities, the 100. So yeah, yes, it's nearly 150,000, but we're talking about more than 100 universities, which are effectively businesses. UCL itself, in that COVID year of major lockdowns, 20, the academic year 2020 to 2021, made it profits of 150 million pounds. So we're seeking th around 30 million pounds for our 6,000 uh, back for our 6,000 students. It's a drop in the ocean for the universities in, in real terms. And they should be able to deal with it as the businesses that, that they are. UCL pays its vice chancellor about £589,000 a year. Um, we're asking, like I say, for £30 million. UCL made massive profits over that lockdown year. It also did what every other university that we've written to so far seems to have done, which is massively increased its student numbers um, over, over the COVID period and continued to do so because they realised that by teaching people on Zoom, you're not constrained to the physical aspects of a lecture theatre. So UCL between 2018 and 2021 increased its student numbers by 41%. And that's not that's not the most out of uh, the list of the universities that we've written to. Some went nearly up to 50%. UCL has net assets of more than £1.6 billion. It's done extremely well financially. It also took furlough money and saved over this period, um, uh, over the lockdown period, where it wasn't paying for, for freelance staff, it wasn't paying for ut utilities to the same extent. And like I say, it massively increasing it, its, its income. So I don't think that this is a governmental issue. I think that what we're looking at here is 100 plus big businesses that have made hay while the sun shone, made loads of money out of these students, had to deal with, yes, strikes and lockdowns but then pushed all the financial impact onto the vulnerable students who have no have no money to pay for these things and are having to take out loans to do it on the whole so that was ryan dunleavy who's partner at harkus parker so this um an ongoing 
uh, legal case. It's it's gone to arbitration, as it were, certainly for for some of the case. Yeah, well, that's particularly around UCL. That element of the case, which as we heard there from Ryan Dunleavy, is the part that's furthest advanced uh, in their action. They're taking against a whole range of universities across the country. Uh, we did contact UCL for comment mm-hmm. on this story and on those figures quoted by Ryan Dunleavy about what he described as UCL's profits. A UCL spokesperson said that UCL is a public institution that does not make a profits. Any surplus income is reinvested into the university. On the broader legal action, back in July, UCL's Vice Provost Kathleen Armour said that they respected the rights of their students to complain and seek redress. They believe that their complaints procedure represents the most efficient, cost-effective and swiftest way for students to resolve their complaints. And they said that they were pleased the High Court had ordered the proceedings to be stayed to allow for parties to attempt to resolve the students' claims without the need for further litigation. Yeah, absolutely. So it's been a, a big summer, really, for students. We prepare for the new year. And I have to give credit where credit is due because of course part of this segment was introduced to us and produced by us by our own intern here at Bloomberg, Jack Ryan. Well that is it from us for today. If you like the programme don't forget to subscribe and give it five stars so other people can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you listen. This episode was produced by Jack Ryan. Our audio engineer was Marufa Hussain. I'm Caroline Hepke. And I'm Stephen Carroll. We'll be back with more tomorrow. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg UK Politics. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at cuttereconomicforum.com.